and our opportunity to celebrate freedom. And it's an important thing for us to do as a church. After all, we were one of the strongest influences in the Declaration of Independence and the Revolutionary War. Churches were, not specifically First Baptist Tomball. We didn't come on the scene until 1909. But in 1776, God had moved in an amazing fashion. And he had begun to touch the hearts of people. And they began to jettison their sin and the, and the difficulties and the struggles and the, the rebellion against God to trust him and to know him and find forgiveness and life change in Jesus. We refer to it historically as the first great awakening. Great pastors and preachers like John Charles Wesley, um, George Whitfield came to the colonies, began preaching the colonies. Crowds gathered in Philadelphia. Ben Franklin said one day that he estimated that nearly 25,000 people were gathering to listen to George Whitfield preach the gospel, the simple good news of Jesus that we do and talk about and share every day of our lives. Those changed lives experienced true freedom spiritually and then began to want to experience freedom from a civil and national perspective. Thus, the writing of the Declaration of Independence and then after the war, the beginning of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, we are recipients in the very First Amendment. We exist and we are allowed to exist in the United States today free without any kind of government oversight or intervention because the First Amendment says the federal government has no business interfering with us in the freedom of our expression of our love and our worship for God and the work he wants to do in our hearts. In fact, Carrie and I were talking over breakfast this morning and and remembering there's a group called, um, they were called stateside in the colonies, they were called the Black Robe Brigade. Um, The British began calling them the Black Robe Regiment. Um, In 1776, all pastors wore these huge, big, black flowing robes. Makes me so thankful I'm a pastor in 2022. Blue jeans and a cabana shirt works just great for me. But they were primary influencers in the colonies, actually went to battle with many and many were a part of the actual process of revolution to gain our independence. The church has always played a significant role in American history. And that's no different. The fact that it's 2022 and everybody's pretty well confused about what independence even means or or how you even understand that and what you're actually free to do and should be free to do, the church still plays a significant role. And because of that, I want to introduce to you a new friend that from this year, Alexandra Miller is with us. Alexandra is the candidate, the Republican candidate for Harris County Judge, and Alexandra and her family is with us. And so, Alexandra, if she's going to come join me, we're going to just talk a little bit about that process of defending freedom and how our faith plays in and how freedom works. Welcome, Alexandra. Glad you're with us today. We're just going to kind of sit and have a conversation together and and visit a little bit about some of her experiences. But before I do that, if I can pause for one second, um, also knowing the price of freedom and the the desire for freedom, um, we've been privileged today to have a couple from Ukraine who managed to escape. Their son-in-law went over there, actually got them, their elderly couple, and they have been with us today in Bible study, Um, Yuri and Lada has been with us all morning. We welcome them as well. They understand what it means to be in a war-torn country at this time. So welcome and thank you for being a part. 
So Alexandra, you, you have a really unique perspective because you chose to serve our country. Um, your time at West Point, I'm going to assume that West Point is about as military as it gets, even though I guess technically as a student you're not, I don't know how that works out with West Point. What was, what was it like at West Point? Good afternoon, thank you all for being here. So, yep, I went to West Point at 18, right out of high school, which is pretty much the traditional route, but what was different uh, for us was that was the first time uh, that we were a country at war, uh, at least for a foreseeable period of time. So right after 9-11, uh, went to West Point with very clear focus and mission. Uh, it wasn't hypothetical. Uh, it was very clear that your friends, your classmates were deploying uh, overseas. I remember the first time we met, you described your experience being deployed as a tour of all the places you never want to go. I don't know if you remember actually saying that. Um, I can't even pronounce half the names of where you went. No, well, I think uh, the main point from there, uh, for everyone that has deployed, uh, you become so thankful uh, for the life that we have. Um, and, and that was something for me that really pushed me to get involved in this race. Uh, were those differences um, where you see broken or failed states, Having friends that were in the Israeli Defense Forces, I always thought that was a very unique difference is when they went home, they were still in that uh, mindset where they still had to worry about rocket attacks um, in that threat. And so whether you're Iraq, Afghanistan, it was always a nice comforting fact to know that when you go home, uh, it was back to the U.S. and, and what a great um, life we have. And you know, for me, watching Harris County change, it was pretty upsetting to see that some of those basic freedoms, uh, public safety top among them, uh, that was no longer the case. Which we appreciate that. I mean, to come out of a deployment with the military, come home, start raising your family. Clay's with us here today, um, as well as both of your kids. Her daughter's having her third birthday today. Um, it looks like it looks like Clay retreated and let them go to preschool. So they're, <laughs> they're both both kids are over in preschool now, and, and we're glad to have them with you. Um, so when, when you're deployed, I actually know the story. I don't know that everybody else does. I know some of your assignments. You want to talk just a little bit about what you did as a soldier? Sure. Uh, so I started off uh, in the military. I decided to join the Army Bomb Squad. Um, Army Bomb Squad has quite a bit, actually, of an intel or intelligence role. Um, what you're really focused on is mapping that terrorist network. Uh, unfortunately, not a big surprise. Most of the IEDs or roadside bombs... Uh, that come into Iraq and Afghanistan come out of Iran. Um, you see these different, it's almost I, you know, how to be a terrorist 101 kits. And as the bomb squad, it's really our job uh, to make those, the troops on the ground, the kind of infantry, what you traditionally think of soldiers, uh, that they know these are the types of IEDs we're say, seeing, this is how to avoid them, this is the equipment that makes sense for our area. Uh, so really with me, most of my role was interacting uh, with those battlefield commanders, making sure that they understood you know, what that threat was uh, in their area specifically. And when you needed uh, bomb squad, which you know, our mission is protection of personnel and property, or sometimes when you just need uh, good old-fashioned engineers and you need to, uh, you know, where it's bad enough that you just need to uh, blow up the roads and, and move out because it's... Um, you get to blow up the road? Uh, we try not to do that, but unfortunately, uh, there are parts of Afghanistan where, in a, a single stretch, people were running into 10 uh, roadside bombs. Oh, and man. at that point, if there's not personnel or property to protect, um, 
you know, our goal is how do you make the mission go as quickly as possible, that uh, we had to use engineer forces for some of those areas. I was deployed to the home, uh, where the home of Mullah Omar was in the first part. Um, so, I mean, that was a Taliban hotbed um, where it was very constant activity. So what, so it's kind of, I find it interesting, we're, we're gathered and we're all, we're all together, most of our houses are decorated and, and um, many in the audience has decorated themselves today as you can, as you can see. Um, and so American celebration of the 4th of July in the United States back home um, seems almost like a party. I mean, most of us have watermelon and barbecue and things like that on the agenda what do you do when you're deployed and you hit like a holiday like this? I mean, it just seems to me it would be a very different emotional experience knowing that it's July 4th and you're on the front line. You're defusing bombs, coordinating with battalion leaders and different people in command. What's it like to be deployed during an event that we typically celebrate so casually? My deployment does one of those marks on the calendar where I missed two Fourth of July's you know, just spent about just under a year and a half. It uh, just helps a lot. I think a lot of people like to focus on the fact that people are having fun and doing a good thing. Um, and that's what makes people eager to get home. Uh, so for our troops that are now overseas, it is helpful to get those cards, that outreach. Um, but I, I do think in 4th of July is actually an important time for faith, for family, uh, to think about how important it is to live in a free country. Uh, and what important protections we need to have in place for those freedoms. Uh, for me and our county government the last few years, it was really seeing this very strong government where people lost a lot of freedom, you know, the freedom to practice their religion, uh, businesses, uh, or for me, even my daughter, uh, the idea that she had to be masked at her preschool wasn't my choice. Uh, those were things that, in my opinion, crossed partisan lines. Uh, so this may take it to a slightly negative side, and I don't really want to do that. Um, what, what, from that perspective of having served and having protected those freedoms, you come back. I know, I know when we like do mission trips and stuff like that, a lot of times it's we're in other places where things are much, much different, and it's a little hard sometimes to adjust to coming back. What, what do you think we potentially most take for granted when it comes to our freedom? I don't know, I didn't tell you that one in advance, no, no, so you can no, think no, about no. it for a minute. I just think that it's the idea that we have it, and it does, it's not something that's a flip of a switch. You know, when you visit countries that are failed states, they weren't always that way. Um, Afghanistan in the 70s was a lot better than it is today, uh, with the Taliban coming to, uh, to power. And most countries, you see that even in Iran, they had Mozambique, functional government, uh, that it is those uh, slippery slopes. And I think what the biggest challenge here in the U.S. is apathy because things have worked so well for so long. Um, people have taken it for granted. I'll be one of the first to admit that when I moved down here, I didn't focus on our county government precisely because you didn't need to because it well, was so well um, run. And I think that's the, the shift is that when you don't keep a watchful eye um, on your government, whether, whether good or bad, you know, it has that ability to change. And by the time you start paying attention, you might not like the direction it's gone. Uh, and so with freedom, it requires active participation. Whichever way you are on the side of the aisle, the biggest issue is that people aren't participating. You know, they really don't know what's happening. Um, and it's very challenging, especially at local government, which is where I think you can have the biggest influence, because you don't have the media coverage. Um, 
most people, and it's not anything against it, just don't even know what the county judge does. So happy to talk about that, but you wouldn't. It's not that there's a, a lot of coverage on it, so unless you're really uh, going out of your way, it, it's hard to understand what that role even is. And um, That was the so what or aha moment uh, for me, was realizing just how impactful of a position it was. That makes a huge difference. I, I worked with both Judge Echo and Judge Emmett, um, and was deeply involved. Our, our church at that time, the church I was at, was deeply involved in, um, in disaster relief. This church is disaster relief. We are actually the only certified church um, in this region up here. I don't say that out of boasting. It's just a responsibility we've taken on, um, and we did during Harvey. And so we've always been pretty, pretty active in, in that area. I remember you telling me we were talking about Bomb Squad and some of that after the, we were part of a candidates forum together. And, and I remember you telling me um, about all the things involved with that deployment. And, and she looked at me and she said, well, I think emergency management's going to work out okay <laughs> after having been involved. In and we don't, we don't have to deal with that for the most part. Although current crime rates... I don't know. We maybe need a leader who has bomb squad experience. It's been pretty rough lately. Um, that participation, you, you, you got my attention on, on two things. You said, you know, keep, kind of keeping an eye on things um, and then participating in the government. How, how would you see or how would you like the community to do that? And obviously, specifically, we're, we're, we're churches, um, probably... Um, a good majority of our congregation comes from Harris County. The rest all come from Montgomery County, a few few strays from Waller County because um, we're right up here where everything comes together. Um, what, what can we do? How can, how can we participate? So, you know, just the high-level numbers in the county, you know, 4.7 million people in Harris County, uh, third largest county in the country, would be roughly 25th state. Um, maybe we'll get 1.4 million people to vote in this election. Uh, so that's really the high bit is that it's communicating uh, the importance of this election. Our county government really is at a turning point um, where it has fundamentally shifted. You know, I'm a strong advocate of trying to get back to those core functions of government, being traditional infrastructure, road bridges, um, and flood control, and then supporting uh, our law enforcement. Um, so investing in more traditional forms of criminal justice, that means more officers patrolling uh, versus on the other side, you know, we've seen very significant investments, more climate change, electric vehicle charging stations, bike trails, early childhood development, social workers, uh, but we haven't seen that same sort of focus or investment uh, into those core functions. And so, you know, I think if you look at the last election, most people actually wanted at Emmett, um, but not enough came out. So within 20,000 votes is what's shifted our county government. Because uh, we used to have straight ticket where you could just pull the lever, vote Democrat all the way down. Uh, now that's gone. And so trying to get people to really understand, you know, what do you want to see out of your county government uh, and to vote? Because this isn't about needing to flip a lot of people. It's about getting them to pay attention. And the more you follow um, what's been happening in our, in our county government, you know, I'm pretty confident that most people have not opted in uh, to what is an extremely progressive form of government here. Um, and that's the biggest takeaway is, you know, I do see myself as the reasonable person in this race, is running on very moderate. How do we efficiently uh, and effectively deliver core services? Uh, no one has ever been a more resource judge than Judge Elena Hidalgo. Uh, her budget at a minimum has grown 35%. She got uh, $1.5 billion from the federal government. Uh, and yet every element of our criminal justice system starved of resources. Um, I just think that's inexcusable. 
Yeah. And as a faith group, we, we participate regularly in a lot of those things. I know I meet quarterly um, with law enforcement here in Northwest Harris County and, and try to coordinate. Um, we, are, we participate through the pastor's council um, with, unfortunately, sort of crisis intervention. The, when we lose a deputy, when we lose an officer, uh, we're kind of typically first on the line um, to help with those families and be with those families and deal with that process. Um, a lot of people don't see a tie between faith and, and government or politics. And this isn't a congregation that believes that, at least the vast majority. I may leave somebody out, but, but for the most, the leadership side of our congregation definitely believes faith belongs in the public arena and should be there. Um, are there ways, specifically, I guess, as a church beyond community involvement, are there things that possibly we could do or or way faith could be integrated in to help just strengthen the community? I think really what you're doing now is just having those discussions mm-hmm. um, because this is all, a, like what I said, a, an engagement. Um, people just aren't willing to talk about what our local government is doing, should be doing. Uh, and it's important, uh, just like you have, uh, where faith plays a, a role uh, in your life, having that oversight on our local government uh, should be a role as well. Because uh, frankly, local government is where so many key decisions are made and nobody's talking about it. You know, it's not That's what it's uh, headlines. So when you are active in your church, at least knowing what, what those key issues are, those are things that most of the people that you interact with on a daily basis would, would have no idea. So I think it's just that spreading uh, that information that, that is so pivotal. And um, if we're not going to do it, then, then who is? Because we've seen that the media is not going to spend time covering uh, local government. And we, um, most of us have seen it in our lifetime, not so much our students. These, this is our youth group and students. They, they also spread out somewhere with their parents and stuff. Um, but in my lifetime, I've seen a huge shift. Um, the church pretty well didn't get involved in any kind of political or government activities because most of the issues were those core things that you were just talking about, infrastructure, that type of thing. Um, but so much of what's happening now has a moral basis to it. It's not just simply infrastructure anymore. The, um, the government's constantly, at all levels, even local city council to, to county government, to state, to federal, um, at all levels, many of the issues they're up against are um, moral issues. We refer to it as approaching the conversation with a biblical worldview. Um, because we base the foundation of our faith on what the scriptures teach and our relationship with God, while it's very personal, it's very intimate, it's a very real relationship, um, that relationship with God then manifests how we're supposed to behave and how we're supposed to interact and, and what we believe is simply right and wrong. Um, I don't know if you have any, any thoughts on that because I think that gives us a unique perspective that you're not going to hear from, from other sources of information, media, corporates, business, um, the other areas that tend to interact really a lot with our government. You know, I think if you look at last week, one of the big priorities right now on commissioner's court was you know, how do we put our county budget dollars to funding abortion. Correct. You know, that, that's where it has gone much more beyond who can be a good steward of resources to how are you really driving uh, social, uh, political um, policy at the local level. And that's just what's been so different. Yeah. And I don't know how many of our people were aware of that, but that happened this past week after the Supreme Court decision um, 
County Judge Hildago presented options to the County Commissioner's Court, which passed along party lines three to two, uh, to, in my words, and in my testimony, in the letter I wrote, um, the, the basically try to make Harris County a sanctuary for abortion, um, which our church adamantly disagrees with. And that's where that biblical value comes in. We just, we just spent a week, we've, we've had about 200 kids here every day this week. It's kind of hard to stand up here on this platform and see 200 kids out here um, and think that somehow somebody can think that that's expendable. It's, that, that doesn't work in my mind and, and in my heart. Um, but that's, I think, where the biblical voice needs to be, needs to be shared. You know, first uh, kind of priority is protecting our most vulnerable. Uh, and so while Hidalgo talks about gun violence, she's not mentioned how many young children have been murdered by gun violence, but by people, you know, multiple repeat felons uh, that have been let out by our broken judicial system. And so it's hard that if you're failing as a government to protect your most vulnerable population, how do you kind of expand the mandate outside of there? Because uh, to me, I mean, that is the most important issue. Yeah. And interestingly enough, while that is a commission to the government, it's also a commission to the church. We have, we're told Old Testament. So for thousands and thousands of years, the church has been told our responsibility is to help and to assist the vulnerable. We, we're told in the Old Testament, the prophets actually said, what is true faith? What is true religion? It is the assistance and care of widows and orphans. That's sometimes kind of hard for us. We Actually, our deacons have been discussing this a lot lately. How do we care for widows when, well, quite honestly, most of our widows are in pretty good shape, but they still need friends and they still need, they, you know, it's not, it's not feeding food. Most of our widows don't need us to give them bread this afternoon, but they need our care. They need, they need our attention. Well, because we're a part of a community. We, we do this and we live in this community as a church, but also in the larger spectrum of the community. I want to share a verse with you that I'm actually going to share with them real quickly um, because I, kind of from a personal perspective, I know this is something my wife Carrie and I do all the time is pray for our leaders. In 1 Timothy, Timothy is a young pastor in Ephesus. Um, if you were to visit Ephesus in the first century AD and use today's terminology, Ephesus was a progressive City, a uh, it was a progressive city state, extremely liberal. Um, most of life had no value to anybody. Um, the licentiousness, the, the 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 sinfulness, the nature of that was just absolutely crazy under Roman occupation. Um, and so the people in Ephesus and the new church in Ephesus was struggling pretty hard. Paul, the apostle, mentored Timothy as a young pastor. He was the one who discipled, mentored him, and he wrote to Timothy. In what we call First Timothy, it's chapter two and verse one. He says, first of all, I urge that petitions, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority. So I just I want to ask you on a personal level, if I can, what would you ask our church to pray for? I mean, obviously you're in candidacy at this point, um, but in general, once you're in office. What are, what are the types of things we could specifically pray for? I think that uh, the strength of character um, to hold strong. I, I know going in the next uh, few months will be uh, pretty aggressively attacked. Um, so to pray to, to have that moral uh, character to not you know, buckle under that pressure um, for my family to not have to, for us to stay strong. My husband's been extremely supportive. Um, but going into the next few months, just 
uh, making sure that we keep that resolved because, uh, you know, Harris County is, is a national priority for the Democrat Party. Mm -hmm. That's true. Um, so my opponents already had several fundraisers with Nancy Pelosi, Hillary Clinton. Uh, they see Harris County as the key to flipping Texas. Um, so Hidalgo stated after winning Harris County judge this next time would be the next gubernatorial candidate. Um, and so understanding the amount of uh, focus and resources that are going to be spent trying to tear me down and be mild about it. Um, it is helpful to have that extra support because you don't want to feel like you're alone. And that's what I think churches do such a great job is having that strong community fiber uh, that you can hold the line because it's not just you and your family. It's this network and community of people uh, that make you stronger. And you're doing this all the while while your mother of a three-year-old and what's Colton, year and a half? 18-month-old, 18-month-old, yes. three-year-old. I don't mean to in any way to diminish the importance of our military, but I consider being the mother of two preschoolers combat. Uh, yeah, my, my daughter is the only person that can bring me to my knees, so <laughs> I'm degree, at least that I've met so far. And Clay is a great that guy. If you get a chance to meet him after the service, Clay, Clay is a great guy and, and doing a great job, and we can definitely, definitely pray for that. Um, and, you know, we want to be supportive of you as a person, of all of our leaders. We, um, we, we cycle through and meet different leaders and our church's friends to several of our active leaders. We're good friends with, well, Jack Cagle, who you've gotten acquainted with, and um, Tom Oliverson. Tom Oliverson's actually been a part of our church and our history, and, and um, this is important to us. We believe the Bible is true, and we believe that living according to Scripture is the best way to live. We believe that is empowered by the presence of God when a person comes to know Christ, when, when they make that decision and, and they distinguish what the world has difficulties distinguishing, that it's not about religion, it's not about the organization, it's not about the institution of religion, it's about knowing God in a personal way. And, and that changes everything, and it changes the world. I know in my own personal opinion, um, we stand at a time in history that's not a whole lot different than the mid-1700s. Um, there are different forms of oppression, different forms of things, um, and then there's definitely uh, you know, a clear example that we could come up with without description, without details. It's just obvious that there's, again, taxation without accurate representation. We want to be a friend to our leaders and, and, uh, and be able to be a part of that. Again, what started that revolution was a revolution of hearts. And that's our role. I, I'm going to be really candid with you. I don't expect the government to revolutionize hearts. They're trying, which is why they've got so many moral issues on the table. They're trying to tell people this is what your heart's supposed to be, this is what your life's supposed to be. But they're doing it without any clear guidance from the only one true divine source. And so it's just not going to work. That's our role. And that's why we partner with our leaders um, because we're responsible, as our very mission statement says, we are the ones who can have the conversations about changed lives. And that is what has fundamentally changed is what is the role of government. You know, as a parent, that was one of the most offensive things to me was seeing government stand in between me uh, and my child. Um, we've seen that at a host of different various levels of government, whether you're looking at what's happening in the schools, at the county. Um, we have people going out to high schools uh, to push the vaccine in the early days because precisely that's when they know the parents aren't there. Obviously the masking of my daughter 
Uh, but then in the lockdowns, we, said, we saw a government say, you're essential, you're not. Um, and I just very much believe in good governance, and I define good governance as limited government, um, that we've seen government now try to take the role of the church uh, in every institution and kind of make that as the one arbiter. Uh, if you ask me how, did you, how do I think about how Harris County government used to be, it was a stable background support system. Uh, and that's what I'd really like to get us back to, where that you're not thinking about the Harris County government at all. Um, it's kind of like the trains are running on time. You should be seeing road maintenance. You should see active police force uh, that is well-resourced and equipped so they can enforce the law. Um, and we're not trying to get into how we raise your kids uh, through the government. Well, Alexander, thank you for taking time um, on your Sunday and on your holiday weekend to come and visit with us. We look forward to getting to visit again in the future. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. I think we can pray better when we know the people we're supposed to pray for. So when Paul tells Timothy, I want you to, and, and notice the, the breadth of and the extent to which he mentions praying. It, it, goes, it goes through four different synonyms here. Petitions, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving, be made for everyone and for all those. And of course he references kings because that was the governmental system he was a part of and familiar with. All those who are in authority. It'll, I hope, at least, that's part of our intention, is that it's easier to pray for leaders when you know who they are and you have a chance to interact with them, see them, and realize they're real people with real needs, real children that you're trying to raise, just like, like many of us are and many of our families are, um, that we can be praying for them. But here's what I find really interesting in this passage of Scripture. After he tells Timothy, him to pray, to lead his church to pray for leaders, he says that it's beneficial he says, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godness and dignity. I think a lot of times the mistake we make as believers is to think that we can live the Christian life in a vacuum that doesn't interact with the rest of the world. The tranquility of our life and the quietness of our life and our godliness is impacted by our employers, by the places we work, by the people we interact with, by the businesses that sell and interact with us, and by the government. And we have, as has been referenced today in our conversation, we have experienced that in a fashion most of us had never experienced, the oversight um, of that government intervention in an extremely negative fashion in an extremely difficult time. Paul said, pray for these leaders. Have them on your hearts and lift them up to God because you'll have tranquil, quiet, meaningful, godly lives. We, we can no longer exist as a church. We were never intended, we were never commanded to live in isolation. We've always been commanded to be interactive. We don't take the light of the hope that's in Jesus and hide it underneath the bushel as Jesus described it. We are to penetrate and impact and our lives are better because of it. And this is amazing. In verse three, he says, this activity is good and it pleases God our Savior. I'm, I'm gonna just take a wild guess that most of us haven't thought this past week that our civic duty pleases God. And it's, it's, it's stretched. Our team, our team knows I just came back this week from jury duty. Um, 
I have become a full suburbanite after 18 years, 17 years in the inner city of Houston where I was as urbanized as possible. I came out here 13 years ago, became your pastor, and I literally despised driving below Beltway 8. I did not mind doing jury duty. I did not mind sitting on a duty. I I was willing to do whatever was necessary because it's my responsibility as a citizen. But I really didn't want to drive into downtown downtown Houston. So that's the whole reason I'm praying for Alexandra because maybe she can come up with a judicial system that spreads out and we just drive 10 minutes instead of 45 (laughs) minutes to do jury duty. I don't even know. But we are to participate. God's happy. And, I, you know, and that's a stretch. If you're sitting in the jury assembly room down there on Congress Avenue and you look around and everybody's, it's a pretty solemn place because nobody wants to be there. And, and you're, you, know, you don't stop and think, oh, you know, this is a great day. God is happy I'm here. I couldn't think that because I wasn't happy to be there. But our activity, our praying for those in authority that, so that we may live this tranquil, quiet, godly life pleases God and it has purpose and this is one of the key issues we're facing as a church as we move into November and every election from this point on and this is where our founding fathers would challenge us this is where the black robe regiment would come out and say you've got to do something you've got to be involved because God's purpose was that everyone would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth Everyone's not going to have a saving, loving relationship with Jesus if the church lives in a vacuum. To live out our vision to be people who regularly have conversations, invite people into life-changing relationships isn't going to happen if we're isolated and withdrawn from the world around us. Jesus told us Go and make disciples of all nations and do it with his authority. God wants people to know him. And those of us who know him have an immense responsibility to be absolutely certain we do everything in our power to help them meet Jesus. But a move from limited government, like Alexander described, to what, has been, what is being attempted today will ultimately and is already restricting the church. We isolated ourselves and they decided they like us isolated. They like us contained. So now let's make praying on football fields illegal. Let's make talking to a student at school about your faith and their faith illegal. Let's make singing at a beach during during. Issues of close downs and lockdowns, illegal. Let's make gathering as the people of God, illegal. The voice of Christ cannot be silent. And God will open a way. And he's calling us to be a part of that. Pray. Live our godly lives. Knowing that this pleases God. And make sure we stand for every opportunity to share the gospel. To live out the First Amendment the way the founders intended it. Without the intervention of government. So that people meet 
Jesus. That's what Paul said in 64 AD in Ephesus as Timothy would deal with that godless city and region. God wants everyone to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. We don't hide it. We don't archive it. We don't vault it and secure it. We spread it. and We take it everywhere. Father, where at times the church has not gone forth with the gospel, we recognize that and we honestly repent. You want us to go. You want us to share. You want us to have these conversations. We're willing to do it. You even promised where our fears may often be overwhelming that you would be with us So we're not on this task by ourselves. We are not deployed on a divine mission without the accompaniment of not just our friends, our brothers and sisters, our comrades, but you. You're with us. You're with us now. And you're with us when we go. And you're with us when we talk to our friends at work and our friends at school and our friends in our community, when we talk to our own families. There is no greater love. There is no greater experience. There is no greater joy than knowing you. Thank you for loving us so personal and so intimate. Once again, as individuals and as a congregation, as a group of people, You're welcome in our lives. We invite you in our lives. We want to live with you. We want to know you. We want to be changed by your love and by your grace and by your holiness and by your righteousness. Thank you. Always be our vision. 